Folks, this morning we come to the end of a a three-part mini-series where we've been looking at baptism together. Three weeks ago we started just looking at a a bit of a, a biblical background to baptism and particularly we focused on the way in which God works with his people in covenants. His covenant that he makes with his people meets with our response, his gracious covenant with our response in faith. And we saw that that began to give us some ideas uh, that would become important to us as we thought more about baptism. Last week, we moved into the New Testament era, and we looked, if you remember, at a lot of the imagery uh, that surrounds baptism when it's spoken of in the New Testament. And actually, there was quite a lot. We were only able to to mention a few things. In the end, we, we focused our attention particularly on how baptism symbolizes a Christian's immersion into Jesus Christ and how they die with him and rise again to a new way of life. So those are things that we thought about last week when we thought about the meaning of baptism. This morning I want to to bring it all a lot closer to home and, and think about how we do baptism in Kirkpatrick Memorial and in other churches like this. So our subject this morning is how we practice baptism at Kirkpatrick Memorial. If you're familiar with baptism as a subject and some of the the debates that there are, you probably realize that we're heading into an area here where where there is more debate and disagreement among Christians. And a lot of that debate in the end focuses on, on the question Um, Who should be baptized? If you take that question alone and ask across the range of Christian churches, there'll be a variety of responses to that. As we saw last week, or, or I hope we did, it's pretty clear from the New Testament that adult believers should be baptized when they come to faith in Jesus Christ. I don't think there's any churches the world over that would really... um, disagree with this to any great extent, certainly not any of the major traditions. And where there's a parting of the ways then uh, is where where a large part of the church believes that the children of believing parents should be baptized too, uh, whereas in other churches they cannot accept that. So let's spend a few moments thinking about this important issue together this morning. On the question, should children be baptized There'd be lots of of Baptist churches, brethren churches, house churches, a lot of the newer and independent churches. They would say a firm no. They'd say there's no adequate grounds for baptizing babies. They might go on to say that it's a scandalous thing often, uh, that it encourages nominalism, where people come to think of themselves as Christians when they're clearly not. So there's, there's a, a no, a, a group of people who would say no on the question, can children be baptized? On the other hand, the vast majority of churches throughout the last two millennia have baptized the children of their believers. So the Roman Catholic Church, the Orthodox, Presbyterians, Methodists, Anglicans, Lutherans, and Calvinists, to, to just begin a, a long list, they all baptize the children of believing parents. Now they might all be wrong, but there must be some reason for why they do that. And what is that reason? 
Well, if you read up on this, you'd find that different theologians or different writers would emphasize different arguments for infant baptism. I'm very quickly uh, going to outline six uh, that, that I've seen, outline six of those for you this morning. They don't all carry equal weight, but whenever you take them all together, I certainly believe that they make a very strong case. So let's quickly fire through some of these, these reasons why churches have baptized infants. First of all, children were admitted into the Old Testament church. Now, I don't know how you think of the word church, but church simply, if you look at it biblically, it's biblical genesis, it simply means a gathering of people. So the gathering of God's people in the Old Testament welcomed children uh, You'll remember we talked about this three weeks ago. Abraham's covenant, the covenant God made with Abraham. Infants were circumcised when they were born into that covenant community. So let's, let me remind you of God's command from Genesis 17. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people and has broken my covenant. So that's strong stuff. It tells us that a child born into a believing home has the right of the mark of the covenant, even when they're too young to understand for themselves how that covenant works and how it's fulfilled. So this is how God planned it. And once we understand this Old Testament background, we begin to understand Peter's preaching on Pentecost, which we quite often use in a baptismal service. Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you. Now he's speaking, I'm guessing, to a bunch mostly of grown-ups. The kind of people who stand around and listen to public speaking are, are usually, I'm guessing, adults. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit This promise is for you and your children. Whenever he's reflecting on this reality that the children were welcomed into the Old Testament church, Michael Green asks the question, are they to be excluded now from the New Testament church? Has God grown less gracious with the passage of years? Are children meant to be worse off under the New Covenant than under the Old Does a church consist only of consenting adults? Those are all important questions that we we need to answer if we want to withhold baptism from the children of believers. A second reason, a second argument in favor of infant baptism. The whole family was baptized when proselytes came over into Judaism. You might think this is quite an arbitrary thing to be talking about, but we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. And do you remember we saw that baptism didn't have any presence in the Old Testament at all, but there was a a different ritual, which was proselyte baptism when a Gentile was, was brought into the Jewish family. So whenever that happened, whenever proselyte baptism happened, three things always happened. First of all, the head of a a family would offer sacrifices in the Jewish way. All the males were circumcised, 
and then the whole family was baptized. So in proselyte baptism, the whole family together goes through this initiation ceremony, this this baptism. And there's no doubt about it that for the early Christians, this proselyte baptism influenced the way in which they started to practice uh, baptism. Listen to some of the language that the Jewish rabbis used when when they baptized a convert into Judaism. They said he's like a newborn child, a new creation, raised from the dead, born anew, his sins are forgiven him. So the language is the kind of language that the, the church then used, obviously, uh, when they began to speak of baptism. It would have been unthinkable for early Jewish Christians to leave their children out at the moment of baptism. It would have been unthinkable to, to baptize a Gentile family into the church and to stop with those who were under 16 or, or not yet at the point of, of, of understanding. For the most part, I would not encourage arguments from silence. And by an argument from silence, I mean if you make a strong case for something on the basis of what isn't said. But this morning, I'm going to suggest an argument from silence to you. If Jesus comes to a Jewish community that has been circumcising its, its young children for millennia, a Jewish community that baptizes the whole of a Gentile family when they come into Judaism, if it was important to him that that practice of circumcising or baptizing infants would stop, do you not think we would have had some mention of it? Some, some redirection of faith and practice in the early church. We don't have that. I, 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 I'll say to you, it's an argument from silence, but if you take it, take it together, you'll begin to see that, that this is the, very much the practice of the early church. That's, that's actually my third point. An argument for infant baptism is that this is what actually happened in the New Testament. It, it's not surprising, given the reasons that I've just given, that, that the early Christians baptized their their infants. But we need to be clear that it did actually happen. Acts chapter 16, we've read two accounts of household conversions and household baptism. So we've read about Lydia's household there. We've read about the Philippian jailer. In Acts 11, when Cornelius the Roman comes to faith, he and his family are baptized. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says that he's baptized the household of Stephanus. Now, the thing that I find interesting about all of these is that the passages talk about it in a very matter-of-fact way. They don't make a big deal of it because it is no big deal. To them, it's just obvious. When the head of the household comes to faith, the whole household is baptized. These kind of passages can be quite awkward for churches that that don't uh, allow for the baptism of infants. I think they they sometimes are forced to pin their hopes on the the, the fact that there maybe weren't any children in any of these families uh, and arguments like that. It seems to me that the main reason why modern Christians struggle with this, uh, and by the way, a lot of people do, 
is that we've forgotten about the solidarity of the family in ancient times. In the ancient world, if the head of the family acts, the whole family goes with him. In the Bible, we see God dealing often with families. So it's Noah and his family, Abraham and his family, and so on. Perhaps it's only the the head of the family who initially expresses faith, but it's the whole family who receives the mark of the covenant. Again, on this subject, Michael Green says, the solidarity of the family in baptism is the decisive consideration. Of course, it does not mean that every member of the family was saved. Neither theology nor experience suggests anything of the kind. But it does mean that all members of a believer's family had the right to the mark of the covenant until they made up their own minds whether to respond to the God who had taken the initiative and held out the olive branch of reconciliation towards them. So the early church, the church that we read of in Acts, practiced infant baptism. It seems very likely that that was the practice of the church right from there, right through to Reformation times, around about that era. I'm sure you're all familiar with the the work of the Roman theologian Hippolytus. Um, For those who have forgotten every last part of what he's written, I'll remind you of a part from the apostolic tradition, a document from about 215 AD. He talks in a very natural way about the baptism of children. He says, first you should baptize the little ones. All who can speak for themselves should speak, but for those who cannot speak, their parents should speak, or another who belongs to their family. So Hippolytus, he written this kind of order of service for baptism, used throughout the early church, translated into lots of different languages, which was used for about a thousand years. And you soon discover that this is what churches did. They baptized their their infants, their little ones. And they did it because they took it to be apostolic practice. This is what the, the early church had done. We've covered four of our arguments so far. The, the last two much more quickly. Infant baptism, fifthly, stresses the objectivity of the gospel. And by that I mean that we point to the solid achievement of Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection, whether we respond to it or not. So infant baptism reminds us that we're not saved because of our faith, but because of the gracious action of God on our behalf. Something that stands come rain or shine. It's interesting that Martin Luther, who was known as the the one who rediscovered justification by faith, he he rediscovered that at a time when the church had, had lots of other avenues by which a person could be made right with God. It's interesting then that Luther didn't make faith the focus of his Christian assurance. Whenever he was going through a period of doubt, and if you know anything about Luther, he he lived with an awful lot of doubt. But in those periods of doubt, he did not look back to a point in his life and say, "I, I know that I'm right with God because I've believed 
Luther said something different. He said, I have been baptized. And he, in his case, that was an infant baptism. Baptism stood for what God had already done for him to, to accept him in Jesus Christ. In our day, we have made our feelings almost entirely the barometer of our, our Christian experience. And it might be a good thing to take a leaf out of the book of the old reformer, to let the objectivity, the concrete reality of what God has done for us stand as a foundation for us. The sixth and final suggestion or, or argument, if you like, Infant baptism stresses the initiative of God in salvation. All Christians would agree with what we've been saying uh, the last couple of times we've talked about baptism. God's gracious reaching out to us, meeting a human response. That's how, how baptism works. And the question, I suppose, boils down to, should the sacrament be attached to the human response or to God's divine initiative? And that's at the heart of the question. It's here that those who baptize believers and those who also baptize infants uh, part company, I guess. Baptists believe that it's not right to baptize until a person believes. Because that marks, that attaches the mark of the covenant primarily to the human response. Presbyterians and some of the mainstream denominations take a different view. They say, yes, response is important, vitally important. We've got to be sure that every Christian gets a chance to respond in faith to Jesus Christ. But supremely, baptism is the mark of God's prior love to us. And his initiative it comes before our response, and it's to this reality that we respond. So for, a, for Baptists, baptism primarily bears witness to what we do, responding in, to the grace of God. For Presbyterians, it's primarily a witness to what God has done to make it all possible. Folks, as I was preparing to speak on baptism at all, and particularly as I was thinking about this morning, I had a real uneasiness because I know that it's an issue about which Christian people disagree, and I didn't want to in any way use this moment as a forum for pushing our agenda, a Presbyterian agenda, if you like. What I hope I've done is try to explain the, the underlying theology and the practice of churches like this. It seemed to me a good thing to do that so that it's not a great mystery uh, and so that we have a greater understanding of what's going on. There's a lot more we could have said, but I'm limited on my time on a Sunday morning. I haven't given any time at all to the counter-arguments, the arguments that, a, that a, a Baptist pastor standing beside me would make if he were here this morning. I think it's very important that you recognize that those counter-arguments exist and that they've been very important to many millions of people through the history of the church. So if that's important to you, I think the best thing you can do is probably pursue that. Read up on it if you're the kind of person who enjoys that. If you'd like a more two-sided discussion of that, I'd be glad to come and talk to you 
I recognize that this is very much a one-way street that we're on this morning, and I'm not happy to leave it that way. Um, if you have questions unanswered or issues you'd like to talk about, please be in touch with me, and we can do that. If you want a pretty good overview, a book that I've used quite a lot in this three-week series, Michael Green's book, Baptism, Its Purpose, Practice, and Power. He'll explain the case for infant baptism, but also the arguments that are made against it. So I'd leave you with that. I thought the best way for me to finish a series would be a personal reflection of how this actually worked out in my life. I was baptized as an infant in First Portadown Presbyterian Church on the 14th of May in 1972. Don't ask me to tell you much about it, because I was five weeks old at the time. I have very little memory of it. But I know that it happened. You see, I have a baptism certificate here. And it tells me that William Craig baptized on that day a child by the name of Christoph, whose father's name was Lutz Ebbinghaus, and whose mother's name was Irmgard Schake. So like Luther, I can say, I have been baptized. And from my earliest days, I've been part of the community of God's people. Whenever my mum and dad brought me for, for baptism that day, they made the same promises or very similar ones to the ones that Andrew and Gillian made here this morning. They promised, first of all, they professed their own faith in Jesus Christ, and they promised that they would bring me up to, to know the, the depth and the richness of, of that same faith, to show me the love of Jesus and to teach me how to walk in his ways. I'm eternally grateful to God that by his grace, and to the best of their abilities, they did that. They kept those promises. On the day I was baptized, the people of First Portadown made a promise very like the one that you folks made here not so long ago. And they kept that promise. They looked after me in crash. They started to teach me in their Sunday schools there and in their Robins as it was back then, no anchor boys for me. Formally and informally, the, the men and the women of that community taught me about Jesus Christ and modeled the life of Christ to me. They kept their promise. And whenever my family moved from, from Bangor, or sorry, from Portadown to Bangor, the folks at Hamilton Road Presbyterian Church took it up. They too kept the promises that this Presbyterian family makes every time a new one comes among us. So they helped me this time through my teenage years, offered me encouragement and support then, helped fulfill these wonderful baptismal vows. And by the, team, by the time I reached my late teens, it had become very clear to me that, that God's grace extended to me in my baptism had worked a reality in my life that I now wanted to respond to. By that stage, I knew 
that I too had the same faith and was ready to profess it, this faith of my parents. So I joined a a confirmation class, a new communicants class, if you like. I was taught more about what my faith meant, about what life in the church would mean. Because I wanted to stand before a bunch of people and make a public profession of my Christian faith, and I did that. I committed myself to being a part of, of the family at this time, Hamilton Road in Bangor. And I can still remember that Sunday evening, late in the 1980s, when I stood before a congregation, professed my faith in Christ, committed myself to walk with him all the days of my life. It was a wonderful moment. It was a moment that made sense of all that had gone before, a moment that that brought it all together. Folks, I don't know. I don't really know how to finish a series like this. I'm guessing today we're a mixed bunch. Some of us have been baptized and some haven't. Maybe you were baptized as a child. Your parents, some people around you in the church at that time, wanted to to respond to the grace of God with that tangible moment of commitment. And I suppose my question to you would be, if you were baptized as a child, have you followed through on that? Have you confirmed a living and vibrant faith in Jesus Christ? You can. It doesn't matter how long the gap is. It doesn't matter if you were baptized 80 or 90 years ago. If Christ has become real to you in a, in a grown-up and, and responsible adult way and you've never had the chance to respond to that, why don't you come and have a word with me sometime? And we'll confirm you in your Christian faith. There may be people here this morning who have never been baptized. But as you've been around church, as you've been hearing God's word, as you've been open to the influence of God's spirit, you've realized that a new thing's happened in your life. You've opened your life to Jesus Christ. You've sensed that he has become your savior, the one who rescues you. He's become your Lord, the love of your life. You can come and and be baptized. It doesn't matter what age you are. You can be baptized if you're 12 years old or if you're 72. You can come and be welcomed into the family of God. Folks, baptism, the place where God's gracious initiative meets with our response. My prayer is that that many of us here would know the joy and the comfort and confidence that comes from being baptized. Let us pray. Father God, we have been talking about something this morning that has the potential to divide your family. Lord, we don't want to be a part of that. We simply want to be people who are open to you, who pay attention to your word, who are open to the ways in which you work, and then who respond in obedience 
to everything that you teach us and show us. Lord, thank you for the gift of baptism. We pray that you would give us the courage, whatever age we're at, to to respond rightfully to this call on our lives, to identify ourselves with you and your family, to do it in a public way and to receive the grace that you offer to us. We pray you'd give us wisdom to think about this well. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.